So what's my world? What is my normal world? I think my normal world is the same thing for a lot of you, most of you. And that's purified running water. I got modern plumbing. We've got paved roads. We've got a concrete jungle, urbanization. We've got industry, capitalism, big business, big corporations, factories, manufacturing, consumerism, a lot of technology coming your way. It's normal, right? It's just a normal day. Experiencing all of that always. Well, one of my buddies does not experience any of that in his day-to-day because he is down in the Amazon and the Ecuadorian jungle making a difference. He's doing something that matters. And isn't that the goal for all of us, to do something that matters, whatever form that comes in, just to feel purpose. That's the goal. So I've been really excited for this interview because about, I don't know, six months ago, I had the idea to bring Mitch Anderson on the show. Who is Mitch Anderson? A buddy of mine from back in the day, but even more importantly, the founder of Amazon Frontlines. And this is an organization that is simply trying to protect indigenous people, these sacred tribes, and helping them to survive and their environment to survive and make sure the Amazon rainforest is preserved and not just overtaken by big companies that are looking at their soil and looking at their trees and looking at their habitat and seeing dollar-dollar bills. Instead, it's so much more than that. We've almost just gotten used to seeing big, powerful corporations take over land throughout the world and turn those resources into big companies, turn those raw materials into businesses. And that's just normal. But for a guy like Mitch, it's not normal. He lives a different life where the people actually live off the land. And whatever they eat, they catch, they grow, they hunt. It is so different than the life I'm living. And when I contacted Mitch, I think this is in September, he said, yeah, I'd love to, but I'm busy. Would love to come on the podcast, but things are busy right now. And I felt like, you know what? I don't have to aggravate the guy. If he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't want to do it. But he said, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. And then soon afterwards, I saw on social media that his partner, her name is Namonte Nekimo of the Warani tribe down in Ecuador. She was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people of 2020. Unbelievable. So if you're on the Time Magazine list of the most influential people in the world, You're doing something special. You're doing something impactful. And this is Mitch's partner. And each Time Magazine blurb is written by somebody noteworthy. And you know who wrote hers? A guy named Leonardo DiCaprio. Have you ever heard of him? Let me read this right now. Leonardo DiCaprio describing Mitch Anderson's partner, Namonte. In Time Magazine, Leo says, Last year the Amazon was better known for acres ablaze than for acres saved. But the lawsuit that Amante Nakimo, president of the Warani of Pastaza and co-founder of the Sabo Alliance, brought forth was a rare bright spot. The landmark ruling protects the Warani's ancestral home in Ecuador from immediate destruction. The ripples have brought hope to indigenous communities everywhere. All too often facing overwhelming odds of their own, Namonte lives her fight. And to have a conversation with her is to witness a rare clarity of purpose. I remember she once told me that she wasn't going to give up that she was going to keep fighting, that she would continue to defend the forest that she loves from the industries and the oil companies that would devour it. She has kept her word and continues to be a voice and advocate for her community. Namonte's cause is all our cause. She inspires those she speaks with to shoulder the nearest boulder and walk alongside her 
as her movement continues to grow. I am lucky to have met her, and I am luckier still to have learned from her. Leonardo DiCaprio, September 22nd, 2020. And I met her once at Stinson Beach with Mitch, and that's the last time I saw Mitch. And it's been so long that I don't exactly remember the origin of our friendship. He went to a different high school. I know we played sports against each other. I know he went to Cal. I know we partied together. I know we golfed together. I know we went to some concerts together, but he just became a friend where, you know, saw him from time to time. And then I noticed things were different for this guy, that he was abroad. And I would always get like snippets like, hey, you hear what Mitch is doing in Mexico? Or you hear what Mitch is doing in Ecuador? And I would Google it and I'd read about it. And you could go to AmazonFrontlines.org to read about it as well. But I figured it's too amazing. It's just too amazing to think I know somebody that's doing what he is doing. He is fighting every day for these tribes. He is fighting every day for these indigenous people to maintain their lifestyle, to maintain their culture, their heritage. Something that people here, or I should say most people here, don't really think about day to day. We're so consumed with our devices, with our immediate worries and concerns and the things that stress us out. Not to minimize that, but if you just look at the big picture, saving the planet seems like a pretty high priority. So to really push against these big oil refineries and corrupt government action, to really push against them, it sounds like an insurmountable battle. It almost sounds too difficult, right? Industrialization wins. I guess that's the mindset I've had, just because that's what I'm surrounded with. Industrialization, it seems to have won, but there are still some people on this planet that use Mother Earth for the pharmacy, for food, for education, for life. And that's why I wanted to talk to Mitch. So let's do it. Let's talk about the environment. Let's talk about protecting indigenous peoples. And let's talk about his personal journey. Let's talk with Mitch Anderson. Hola, hermano. Hola, hola, compa. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, bien. Uh, estás ocupado? Question mark. No, I'm here for you, man. <laughs> hey, listo. You're not an easy guest to track down, though. And you're an A-lister. So I was willing, I was willing to be very persistent, although I feel like... I was annoying. Towards the end, I was just pestering you. Let's be honest. No, man. I wanted to do this, man. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, buddy. Okay. Hell yeah. Well, I think I've already explained that you're the founder of Amazon Frontlines and also a longtime friend. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, you know, I can't even pinpoint the origin of our friendship. I know I knew you a little bit in high school. We have so many mutual friends. We've played golf. We've been to a Dave Matthews Band concert together. We were at a Van Morrison concert together. But as I trace the lineage of our friendship, there was a major transition from the Mitch I see in America to the Mitch that's visiting America. So I just kind of want to hear the origin of your connection with the indigenous people of Ecuador and the Amazon, because I actually don't know the story. So how did you originally discover and encounter this culture? Yeah, man. Well, it's been it's been a long journey, man. And um, and yeah, I I don't know if I remember when we when we became friends either, Josh, man, you're. I think you've always been in my life, buddy. So, <laughs> uh, and yeah, no, I I ended up living down in Mexico, um, in southern Mexico, with the Zapatistas, with the the Mayan people, for a number of years after graduating from Berkeley, and was uh, you know was working at a human rights organization down there, uh, learning about uh, investigating the Mexican military occupation of indigenous territories in Chiapas, and really it was you know, one of the most profound experiences of my life, walking with and living with indigenous peoples who 
have such a long memory and a long history of resistance and have gone through and suffered such cruelty at the hands of outsiders and invaders and, and, you know, really kind of put sort of put a lot of perspective, you know, for me on my upbringing, my sheltered upbringing in Marin, um, you know, not really clear sort of, you know, on my own history and family history and where, 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 where I come from. And so that sort of was really the beginning, you know, maybe 20 years ago of beginning to accompany and walk with and struggle with indigenous peoples who are fighting to protect their land and their lives and their cultures and their memory, you know, uh, from military, from oil companies, from mining companies, from uh, networks of illegal loggers. And, and, you know, over, you know, after several years of living and working in Mexico with the Zapatistas, I ended up starting to work uh, with an organization called Amazon Watch based out of San Francisco uh, and, you know, working out of the Amazon, basically, and got to meet uh, communities from Peru to Ecuador to Colombia to Brazil, all of whom were um, and still are um, fighting against, you know, huge industrial development projects in their territories, Um, uh, oil, mining, illegal uh, logging, dams, and, you know, really... Uh, you know, in Ecuador, indigenous communities, you know, have you know, their history over the last 50, 60, 70 years is, you know, fundamentally tied to um, America, you know, and to the U.S. Uh, Texaco was the first oil company, an American company was the first company to, to extract oil in Ecuador in indigenous territory of Ecuador's northern Amazon. And, you know, over decades, uh, they exploited the rivers and um, or they exploited the Ecuadorian Amazon for oil and contaminated the rivers and all to produce a profit and to ship oil to the United States. And so for me, you know, understanding my country's role in, you know, massive environmental destruction and contamination and sickness in indigenous, in indigenous families and destruction of cultures was enraging to me. Um, and so that was my initial connection with um, communities down in Ecuador. And, you know, I've been living down here ever since, you know, really I've been, I've been down in Ecuador since really since 2007. So about 15 years. Were you initially embraced? I mean, you present such a value to these tribes, but I mean, as an outsider, when you think about the origins of you becoming embedded in their culture, did they immediately embrace you or was it a little tough at first? So I guess going back to, to the beginnings of a lawsuit against Texaco, um, you know, the, Indigenous communities, the Kofan people, the Siona people, Sequoia, the Warani, the Quechua, you know, have a long history of living downriver from from reckless oil drilling. And, you know, back in the early 90s, they ended up filing a lawsuit against Texaco, um, who later became Chevron. You know, and that lawsuit has been going on now for 25 years. Um, and Chevron continues to, you know, fight that lawsuit in every different court around the world even though they lost a uh, historic judgment in 2011, um, where they were essentially fined $9 billion for massive environmental contamination. You know, they continue to refuse to, to pay up and to clean up um, the mess that they left in Ecuador's Amazon. And, you know, I began working with the leaders of that lawsuit, you know, um, indigenous leaders who have been dedicating their lives to fighting for environmental justice. And, you know, my role at the time at Amazon Watch was really to support them in getting their message out, uh, making sure that the companies heard them, making sure that uh, shareholders heard them, celebrities, you know, and grassroots activists around the world. And so, you know, from the very beginning, 
you know, I developed some really close friendship with indigenous leaders that were, you know, fighting against, you know, really a, a global economic system that was, you know, protecting um, oil companies over the Amazon and over indigenous people's lives. And then back in 2011, I ended up uh, starting a water project with those indigenous leaders in Ecuador, um, basically, you know, all realizing that, you know, the company is going to continue to fight this, as they said, until hell freezes over. And, you know, you know, oil companies and governments aren't the aren't the owners of justice. You know, um, justice can be built, you know, community organizing, um, people's coming together and, you know, building solutions to the problems that they're facing. And so we ended up starting a water project, you know, which was really concrete and practical and simple. And it was about making sure that every single indigenous family in Ecuador's Amazon affected by oil contamination had access to clean water. And so we built, you know, over a thousand rainwater catchment systems um, for families across the region, uh, making sure that they have access to, to clean water. So I ended up just being able to spend a lot of time out on the rivers, out in villages, you know, meeting families, um, learning about their stories. And, you know, I think, you know, the project grew at the speed of trust in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I think that being down there and being really, you know, curious and open and wanting to learn um, and also, you know, working on a project that really provided support for, for communities and families was a good, you know, a good beginning yeah. to what's, what's going to be a, a lifelong lifelong mission in the Amazon rainforest, a lifelong journey in the Amazon for me. Yeah, a lifelong journey and a lifelong struggle for these people for survival. And I've been reading up on it. I've watched the videos and I couldn't even explain how impressed I am. And I know there's no we win. I know there's no finish line of, hey, we won because big business is always going to remain a threat. But can you share some of the successes? And I know you've discussed some of them, but some of the moments where you've been able to reflect and say, hey, this is progress. I know we're fighting these big corporations, fighting government, but those little moments where you have been able to take a step back and say, we're making progress. Yeah, no, that's no, that's important. Those little those moments of of winning, you know, um, you know, are are invaluable um, for you know the spirit of the movement as well. And you know, I'd say that one of the moments, you know, was back in probably the early days of the water project um, back in 2012 or 2013, um, where you know I realized and we realized that you know the indigenous youth that had joined the project and that were working to build access to clean water for their families, for their villages, we're, we're essentially learning about each other's cultures, you know, so we, we created a project between, you know, multiple cultures, indigenous cultures in the region. Um, and so you had indigenous youth that were going out into other territories, indigenous territories, and, and seeing that they're all facing similar threats, you know, and that, you know, they for, for years hadn't been sort of organizing together um, against the oil companies or against the mining companies. Um, and, you know, realizing that, you know, there's power in, in the union between the different tribes down in the Amazon. And, you know, I think that that was a real powerful moment for, for all of us realizing that um, all of these young dreamers um, that had a big vision for protecting their cultures, protecting their territories and doing it, you know, doing it together and you know it's stronger you know stronger together it was powerful and and back in 2014 the uh the communities came together and and decided to form an alliance um between the ancestral nations of 
you know, one of the most biodiverse parts of the Amazon rainforest, um, the upper Amazon. And, you know, it was an alliance for life, essentially. And it's called the Sable Alliance. Um, and that was another big moment where we realized that, okay, so these, you know, these communities are now coming together, the youth are coming together, and we have an opportunity to really make sure that people from around the world back them, you know, as they put their bodies on the line, as they, um, you know, work day in and day out to protect the rivers and the forests, uh, and essentially in our climate, um, you know, we have a huge, you know, uh, responsibility to ensure that they have the resources and the networks and the capacity they need to to continue that fight. And so, you know, I think the formation of the Sable Alliance was a big moment, you know, and then, you know, as, as, you know, we began working on projects um, more focused on environmental conservation um, and territorial defense, um, I think, you know, one huge moment was, you know, when an indigenous land patrol of the Kofan Nation, um, you know, that has a huge territory in, in, in Ecuador's upper Amazon, in the upper Amazon, ended up, um, finding illegal mining operations um, in the upper headwaters of their territory. And, you know, we engaged in essentially a year-long battle that included territorial mapping, evidence collection, legal cases, communications campaigns. Um, and then we ended up winning in court and shutting down 52 mining concessions and protecting wow. 79,000 acres of forest and um, some of the most important rivers in Ecuador from destructive gold mining. You know, and then just the next year, we ended up working with the Warani people who had been, uh, we'd been working with for, you know, over five years, essentially building access to clean water, building access to solar energy, creating a territorial map that showed the world how the Warani people use their land and live in their land and their historical connections to their territory. Um, we ended up filing a lawsuit, um, Namonte Nkimo, my partner, um, ended up, you know, filing a lawsuit um, with her people to protect over 500,000 acres of her territory from oil drilling. And we ended up winning that lawsuit. And it was essentially a, a victory that was heard around the world um, because it set a precedent for indigenous people's rights to decide what happens on their land. It set a precedent for what's called free prior and informed consent, saying that indigenous peoples have the right to um, know what the governments or the companies are proposing, and they have the right to veto um, any extractive project that's going to be happening on their land. And so that's you know that's a that was a huge moment and one of those moments where you realize that everything that we've been doing, all of the grassroots and community organizing, um, all of the um, movement building, um, allies from around the world, all of this is um, we're on the right track, you know, and this yeah. is the type of work that needs to happen to protect to protect our planet, you know, in, in, in the midst of a climate crisis. Can we get some more Mitches? How about we clone people like this? Because you have such heart and you bring your heart into this. And this is a lifelong mission, like you said. But I also know you're very comfortable with it. You're in Ecuador and I've seen you come back to America. And I'm really curious, is it tough? And I want you to be honest with this because you grew up in Corte Madera and here it's industrialized from our modern plumbing to our paved roads um, to just things that look normal to my eyes. I grew up here in San Rafael. If I were to visit you in Ecuador, it would be such a massive culture shock. But do you almost experience a reverse culture shock when you come back? Is it a little difficult to be back? Yeah, no, I, I, um, I think I've learned to live with, you know, contradictions and, and different realities and, you know, just hold those 
hold those in my in my mind and my spirit you know over the years you know i mean definitely i grew up from you know i i grew up in you know in a very different place than the deep amazon and and within an indigenous culture you know that's still living living off the land and you know when i was growing up you know i i don't think i ever planted a tree or grew my own food or you know didn't really even know where our water came from and you know i think that you know, one of the things that I've learned, you know, from my time in, in, in Mexico to the times, you know, in the Amazon, which has been about 20 years now, um, is that, you know, our, you know, our culture, um, industrial culture, folks that grew up in cities, you know, um, you know, have a lot of work to do to reconnect to, to the earth, to reconnect to the source. And I'm not trying to say in a sort of a new agey way, I'm just mm -hmm. trying to say in a real way, um, We've lost some really profound connections um, to Mother Earth, and that essentially changes uh, our behavior, you know, and changes the decisions we make, and makes it a lot easier for, you know, folks uh, in the cities to uh, justify, essentially, you know, destruction or exploitation, um, um, because they're not they're not they're not they're not connected to it. They're not aware of it. And luckily, right now, I think folks are waking up around the world, you know, that we're facing a global climate crisis, um, you know, and for the first time in all human history, you know, we all have, you know, we're, we have one shared problem, you know, that we need to resolve together, um, you know, and I think, you know, to solve this problem, you know, you need to break it down and do its component parts and try to mm -hmm. figure out what everybody can do, you know, differently, you know, and there's individual changes we can make. Um, there's technologies, there's different, um, you know, agricultural practices, there's, but, you know, in the end, you know, I think what indigenous peoples have been saying for forever, really, for a long time is fundamentally, it's about, you know, values and spirituality and connection with the earth. And it's about respect for land. And if we don't change that, if we don't change our relationship to the earth, then, um, you know, we're going to we're going to keep driving. We're going to keep driving human civilization off the abyss, off the cliff. Um, and, you know, I think that's one thing that Amazon Frontlines is trying to do um, is really lift up indigenous leadership and indigenous voices um, and, you know, make sure that, you know, as we confront the most significant crisis in human history, um, indigenous peoples who have been and have remained connected to the earth for, for thousands of years, um, not only have a seat at the table, um, but are, you know, are leading the way. Um, so that's, that's a profound part of our mission. Yeah. And I know there's no odds makers here, but you are underdogs and it's heavy and it's easy to be pessimistic for an outsider like me. I would look at the situation and go, it's tough. It's an uphill battle, but you don't seem discouraged. I'm just reading your energy I've read a lot about Amazon Frontlines. You don't seem to be discouraged. You seem to remain hopeful. Is that disposition part of how you've had to approach this just in order to have a quality existence? Yeah. I mean, there's no point in giving up or surrendering or being defeatist, right? You know, and I think that there's uh, a lot of hope out there, a lot of value in a lot of value in um well, actually, how do you think the how do you think this is going, man? Are you enjoying the, the chat here? Yeah. Good? To be honest, I don't know anybody like you, so I'm being serious right now. So I'm endlessly fascinated. I feel like you and I can connect on a level. As a teacher, I try to convey a lot of the things that you're saying right now, which is a challenge. 
to have, you know, 15 to 18 year olds embrace just how important some of the things you're saying right now are. So as I hear it, it's enlightening. And I, I feel like we have to relay this message any way we can. And that's why I'm kind of serious when I say, can we clone Mitch Anderson's? I don't mean you personally. I just mean this mentality of understanding the big picture of what we're really doing. Because I, I think my default mode is to be a little more, I don't want to say closed-minded, but just nearsighted. Like sometimes I'm more interested in what restaurant I'm going to tonight versus um, being a little more active within the community and bigger global issues. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. I mean, for you got to come down and visit in the Amazon, man. You know, there's there's a lot of beauty in the world. There's a lot of beauty in the world and it's worth it's worth fighting for, you know, and and, uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, indigenous peoples are the ancestral owners of an area of land that's roughly 10 times the size of California in the Amazon rainforest. Um, it's still there. It's primary forest that's standing 10 times the size of California. Um, indigenous folks around the world um, are living on and stewarding and protecting over 80% of our Earth's biodiversity. They're only 5% of the global population, but they're living on and protecting 80% of our Earth's biodiversity. And so, you know, the way I see it is indigenous folks have gone through the most cruel conquest, you know, from white civilization, essentially, um, over the last, you know, 500 years in the, in the Americas and thousands of years across the world. And, you know, in the Amazon, there are still hundreds of indigenous tribes that are still thriving and vibrant with their own languages, with their own cultures, songs, um, knowledge about how to live a happy and healthy life in the forest. And, you know, that's worth fighting for. Uh, and, you know, and I think it's not only worth fighting for, but I think our survival as people depend on it um, because, you know, we're facing such a massive global problem. You know, the very same mindset and culture that got us into this mess is not going to be the mindset and culture that's going to get us out. I like that. Um, I like that. And so that, you know, the, and I, you know, every day I'm, 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 I'm learning, I'm learning new things, you know, learning to see unlearning, you know, dismantling ways of being, um, and, you know, developing amazing friendships and respect for indigenous men and women, youth and elders, um, that have so much to teach, um, and so much to offer the world. And, you know, yeah, there's, you know, there's ways of looking at it where you're like, shit, we're up against, this is, this isn't, this isn't going well, you know? Um, but in the end, that's not, you know, it's not a good place to be anyways, you know? So, so I, I, I choose hope over, I choose hope over, over pessimism any day. Nice. What's your citizenship situation? Are you a citizen of Ecuador? Yeah. So, you know, I have a, I have a five-year-old daughter, um, and my partner Nemonte is Ecuadorian. She's Warani. And I've got a, I've got citizenship in Ecuador based off my, you know, of being a being a being a papa um, of an Ecuadorian girl. But yeah, no, I, I I didn't lose my U.S. citizenship or anything. <laughs> well, the reason I ask, and this is going to sound ridiculous, and I know you're not a politician, but it's a constitutional republic in Ecuador, and because you do fight the government, you've had these legal battles with the government. I'm just wondering, would there be any sort of wild path? for you to have a role in government? Do these indigenous people, do they vote? Do they take part in the democratic process? I actually don't know how it works. Mm. Yeah, well, on the first one, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not gonna be going for government office <laughs> in Ecuador or anything like that. And and yeah, no, I mean Ecuador is a you know call it pluricultural country, you know, and has you know just in the Amazon alone there are 11 indigenous nations, um, you know, all of whom are citizens of of Ecuador and all of whom you know have the right to vote. Um, but really, you know, I think the struggle of indigenous people is about their own sovereignty. You know, it's about their own autonomy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and essentially, you know, the Ecuadorian government at this point, you know, especially, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and the midst of a, you know, economic recession. And unfortunately, the Ecuadorian government is lacking, I think, uh, a bit of imagination, you know, in and how to sort of rebuild the economy in a way that doesn't destroy the Amazon indigenous cultures. Um, and, you know, I think is planning on doubling down on extractive industries, mining, oil, uh, dams. And, you know, what indigenous peoples are saying is, you know, this is our land and, you know, we are going to be protected for generations to come. You know, and that's really the fight right now is about um, how to ensure that indigenous people's rights are respected. Um, in Ecuador, and that they have the right to decide what happens in their land and their territories. And and we're also working with indigenous communities across Ecuador, across Peru and Colombia as well, to develop solutions as well, you know, economic alternatives, um, educational alternatives, um, ensuring that the cultures um, survive, uh, ensuring that, you know, women have economic opportunities within the nations, ensuring that uh, elders pass down their knowledge, traditional medicines, spiritual knowledge to younger generations. Um, because in the end, uh, the Amazon, you've probably heard and you've seen the fires, you know, in the Amazon. And yeah. and folks talk about biologists and, and conservationists talk about this ecological tipping point that the Amazon is facing. You know, saying essentially a tipping point, meaning, you know, that if we go past this point, Um, There's going to be this feedback circle, you know, where it's going to stop raining in the Amazon and it's going to start drying up. And pretty soon by the end of the century, it's not going to be a rainforest anymore. It's going to be a savanna. And that tipping point is real. But, you know, what's much less talked about is the cultural tipping point. And essentially the cultural tipping point is you have hundreds of indigenous cultures who are the ancestral guardians of this forest who are essentially losing their cultures. They are being surrounded by gold mines, by oil rigs, by roads, by massive monocrops and agriculture and cattle, um, and are being forced into a money economy um, and new ways of thinking and seeing. And so you have the elders who still, you know, walk in the traditional way and, and, um, you know, look to the forest as a source of, you know, meaning and sustenance and spirituality and medicine. And then you have youth that are growing up, beginning to look more to the city, um, to technology, to money, to, you know, as the future, you know, and if it continues to go that way um, and the youth continue to lose connection with their land, then what you're going to have is, you know, an entire generation of indigenous leaders that are more connected to the city than they are to their territories. And the decisions that they will make over their land, which represents, you know, you know, 10 times the size of California, as I said before, and, you know, huge ton, you know, amounts of carbon, you know, will change. And that's essentially game over for for the climate fight. So as the father of a five-year-old, have you thought about that as she grows up and makes her own decisions? If she's tempted into the city, an urban lifestyle, have you even thought about how you would tackle that? or approach that as she becomes her own decision maker? 
Yeah, of course. No, I mean, it's not about tradition for tradition's sake, you know, or folks staying territory. You know, it's it's about indigenous folks having the opportunity to stay connected with their territory and live well in their territory in their forests, while at the same time having the tools that they need also to to confront threats from the outside world, but also to engage in all the opportunities um, that, you know, Western civilization and the modern society provides, you know, and so we're working on making sure, you know, that indigenous ways of learning and knowing um, are represented in the school system and that the elders, you know, have a role in indigenous education um, across their territories, but that also indigenous folks are having the opportunity to, you know, learn um, from Western, Western school system in the best way. So it's about that balance. Yeah. I got a rapid fire for you. That means three quick questions. All right. All right go for it. Number one, what do you miss about America? Like, is there a little something that you just find yourself yearning for at times? Is it absolutely nothing? I mean, are there some moments where if you could just transport here for, let's say, an hour that you really miss? What are what are the top things? Or no, let's narrow it down. What's the number one thing you'd say you do miss about the day to day? Oh man, I miss my yeah, I miss I miss family, I miss friends, I miss all the different food, different foods from around the world. Um, you know, I'm used to in the Amazon eating fish and wild boar and and uh, you know peas and and sometimes it's nice to sometimes it's nice to have some Vietnamese food or some Thai food or some Indian food, you <laughs> right. know, some pot. Some tacos. <laughs> well, that's number two for my rapid fire questions. You just you just said wild boar. Okay. The boar stops being wild when Mitch Anderson approaches the boar. Can you vividly describe hunting something, killing it, and eating it? Seriously, let's stay with boar for a moment. If it's boar for dinner, how does that boar get to your plate? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in the Amazon, you know, uh, family life revolves around... Uh, finding and hunting and fishing and food essentially so every day you know life revolves around that you know and you need to um, wake up in the morning you know like 20 30 people in like the family compound in the in the longhouse in the forest and you know it's it's about kind of understanding okay what's going on did the river rise or did the river did the, is the river levels low is it going to be good for fishing today um, do we have enough firewood if we catch a lot of fish to to smoke all that fish because there's no you know electricity or refrigerators? Um, you know, did the hunters that went out yesterday did they see wild boar tracks? You know, or the, are the boar close? Should we go out hunting? You know, do we have manioc and and plantains? You know, right? Should we go to the garden today? So it's all about kind of family making decisions in the morning about who's going to do what. Wow! Um, Listen to um, this. This is yeah. this has become normal to you, but this is so damn interesting. Each day, every meal is up to you. You're not popping into Costco for the family-sized jar of pickles. You all are going into the jungle and into the forest and looking for trucks to find your entree. I think I think you've lost touch with how interesting this is because that's your new normal down there. But if I visited you for one week, holy shit, I'd be a different human. Oh, yeah. Well, did you talk to Josh Friday about our fishing trip? Yeah, and I talked to Diagnan about the wild monkeys. Oh, yeah. So you got it all then. You know, Josh, no, Josh I don't. Friday, <laughs> Josh Friday was fishing out there, but little, but little Shay, little Shay was just petrified, you know. <laughs> <Shay's>... 
Have you ever had any close calls with wildlife? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, you know, wild boar, you know, down there, they're in packs of packs of over a hundred, you know, and so it's, 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 you know, dangerous. You know, you guys sneak up on them, you can get real close. And, uh, where I need, you know, hunt, where I need hunt with spears a lot of the time, but sometimes with shotguns as well. But the boar, you know, can also surround you, um, Whoa. you know, and, and you gotta, you gotta get up in a tree real quick. So that, you know, that's happened a couple of times where, where the boar, you know, turn on you and, and basically need to, you know, climb up maybe two meters, something six feet into a tree. One time I jumped into a river, um, float down river. Cause we were, the, the guys had gone fishing and we had just hunted, um, you know, two wild boar had the boar on the banks of the river. And we went to go get, I went to float down the river to get the canoe. And, uh, and suddenly my, you know, father-in-law is up river and he starts yelling to me. And he says, I think, man, maybe the canoe went up river. Maybe I shouldn't be floating down river right now. <laughs> I got off at the next, I got off at the next like little beach area. It was like a sandy beach. And the first thing I saw was this huge jaguar print. Oh my God. The jaguar had just le- leapt into the river, it looked like. So I got up onto the beach and I looked around and I had been floating in the river with a jaguar. The jaguar was about a hundred meters down river. <sighs> You're making yeah. my heartbeat. You're making my heartbeat. <laughs> swimming with a jaguar if that's not a ride at great america i have no experience with swimming with a jaguar um have you ever thought about writing a book we're still in the rapid fire portion of the interview have you ever thought about capturing some of these memoirs and publishing them yeah so nemonte and i are going to be working on a book um to be published next year um, hell yes so, yeah so we're working on it right now mitch when i wanted you to come on the podcast i had this idea that it would be a great conversation and then a few days later, that's when Namonte was on the cover of Time Magazine as one of the most influential people in the world, which is just so amazing. And Time Magazine is a big deal here in America. I want you to explain what that was like for her, but I also want you to describe, you know, here she is, an indigenous activist, your lifelong partner. Um, just explain what she means to your entire existence. See, this is a tough question to say it's rapid fire still, but just how special this person is and almost how... You could describe it as serendipitous for you to have met her. Mm. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. A rapid fire. How important is your life partner to your existence? Rapid fire. Oh. <laughs> um, Mitch, we're no. crunched for time. That'll do it. That's Mitch Anderson <laughs> coming up next. Sublime Santeria on 88.8. The eights. Um, no, man. Um, yeah, love. Love is... Love is powerful. Love is a powerful thing. And, you know, Namonte and I have, you know, you know, a long story together. Um, we met uh, six years ago in the midst of a moment when, you know, the Warani people, her tribe was, you know, in pretty significant conflict. Um, you know, so the Warani live in a 2.5 million acre territory, one of the most biodiverse in the world. It's like an area about the size of Yellowstone National Park. And within it, um, there are her relatives who re- continue to be uncontacted. So are essentially uh, tribes living in voluntary isolation still um, with no contact with outside world or with Western civilization. And it was at a time when there was conflict between her tribe and these uncontacted tribes. And Nemonte was going out there to try to make peace. Um, between between the tribes, 
And, you know, I met her as I was, I was living out there on one of the oil roads, building access to clean water systems with the youth. Um, and we met and I was, I was, um, I was, yeah, just overwhelmed by all of her sort of energy, her humor. Um, she was just so like, you know, so deep and profound at the same time, real lighthearted in, um, in her, in her energy and spirit. And we ended up, uh, she ended up joining, uh, the later on ended up joining the, the team to build access to clean water along the oil roads out there. And that's how, that's how we got together essentially. And, and. You know, ever since then, you know, Nemonte and I have been a real powerful team. You know, she was one of the co-founders of the Indigenous-led Sable Alliance, you know, and, and you know, I'm the founder of Amazon Frontlines. Um, and so our organizations have been working together and have, you know, created, I think, a really powerful model of, you know, not only a model of activism and how to protect the forest and protect Indigenous cultures, but I think, you know, a model of, of solidarity you know, and how, how people from very diverse backgrounds and cultures um, can come together and, and, and um, are stronger because of it, you know, and I think that that's, that's how these organ, our organizations are working. And, and at the same time, I think, you know, it's the same in our own partnership. Anyways, that wasn't that rapid fire there, was it? But no, that's okay. Actually, um, none of this should be rapid fire. I actually just have to go pick up my daughter at daycare, which is why I was trying to rush through the end. But yeah. I'll tell you what, you've always been a good dude. I've known you probably since we were 16, 17, but you are different in a good way. And I think Josh Friday and I talked about this. If life can be whittled down to just experiences and relationships, just those two things, then it's so clear that you've been on this positive path with a lot of your experiences and a lot of these relationships. So I've been really impressed and I admire what you're doing. And I'm sending you big hugs. I know you're in Mexico right now, but let's stay in touch and I'll be Looking forward to reading that book one day. All right, brother. No, man, it was awesome talking to you, man. Thank you for inviting me onto the show too, buddy. Of course. By the way, so a lot of time hunting, but what about recreation leisure? Just singing, dancing. Tell me, like, what would be a fun night for the Warani tribe? You know what my definition of a fun night would be. Maybe, you know, go to a comedy club in San Francisco, an Italian restaurant. But what about you? Let's say you want to have a fun night. What does that even entail? <laughs> um... Yeah, man. I mean, it involves, uh, you know, being beat tired at the end of the day after a good day in the forest, a good day fishing and swinging around in the hammock with all the kids and cooking up some good food and feeling healthy and healthy and hungry and and uh, sharing stories about the day. A lot of laughter. Yeah, that'd be a good day. That's a good day. The Warani are partiers, too, though. I mean, there's big time, big time parties. Really? Uh, that they have, yeah, you no know, all night parties, dancing. Um, uh, you know, where I, you know, they wake up real early too, singing in the morning. You know, three or four in the morning. The someday you got to come down and visit, and you'll um, you'll love it. I think I would love to. I honestly would. Let me just say yes. Let me go with the RSVP right now. Yes, I don't know if it'll be when I'm in my forties, fifties, or sixties, but the answer is yes. I All love right. it. And I'm going to party with the Warani. It's so obvious that Brad Pitt is going to play you in the movie. Well, let me just say that. That's my parting shot. It's just so obvious that Mr. Pitt <laughs> plays Mr. Anderson. Well, I love you, my friend. And uh, I'm wishing you and your family the best. Stay in touch. All right, homie. Thank you, man. Take care, buddy. Such a good dude. That's Mitch Anderson. Once again, you could check out what he's doing at AmazonFrontlines.org. All right. Leave a review on iTunes if you like. 
Check out my book, Suddenly Facing Reality, and then soon, hopefully in the near future, check out Mitch's book, along with his partner, Namonte, that will hopefully be a bestseller. And then I'll get him back on the podcast with better sound quality. Holy shit. My OCD flares up here and there, but poor sound quality kills me. I still wanted to publish this one, though. He was in Mexico. I was trying all sorts of apps, WhatsApp, Skype, FaceTime wouldn't work, Zoom. What should we do? What should we do? So eventually, whatever I used, I actually forget. I'm a little tired right now, but whatever I used through my iPad, whatever device it was, there's too many devices. I was surrounded with devices. And I just figured, Mitch, speak loud. It sounds like there's a ghost in your home, but just speak loud because I've been hunting you down and I want this damn conversation. So that is episode 133. There it is. A pretty unique one. But it's officially in the books. And you know I will talk to you soon. <laughs>